Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel 21. As one studies the Scriptures and becomes more familiar with the contents and the declarations which it makes, the trends which one may see throughout, one finds that the Scriptures contain what I'm going to call transcendent principles. Things which in every age and in the life of every person are absolutely true. They are absolutely transcendent. Transcendent principles are principles such as it is more blessed to give than to receive. You don't have to be a believer to recognize the transcendence of this principle that as you give to others, there is a particular blessing, a particular joy that comes with giving that is not present simply in receiving. There are many unbelievers who have come to the point where they have recognized this blessing in their own lives and have thus become determined to give because of the blessing that it brings to them. It's a transcendent principle. A principle such as the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's a principle that that we see at least in, in a a capitalistic society, not so much as, as things drift towards socialism and communism, but in a capitalistic society, the fact that the man who is worthy of compensation gets compensation, that you give to a person that which they are worth because of their labor. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Forgiven, it shall be forgiven unto you. The humble shall be exalted. These are transcendent principles that touch everyone. They extend beyond just believers. Even the lives of unbelievers feel these principles in effect. Transcendent principles are transcendent because they reflect the very character of God. They reflect the very way that He has created us and they reflect the economy within which God has designed humans to operate. And as we consider the character of God, we find that throughout all of the scriptures, God has always expected the same thing from man as it reflects, as it, as it deals with our dealings with God, or as it references our dealings with God. Uh, that God's expectation upon man is not, not necessarily a religious observance or ritualistic exercise. His expectation is a heart of loving, submissive obedience. This is a transcendent principle that if you're going to get to God, it's not inherently going to be through religious exercise or through ritualistic observances. It's going to be through loving, submissive obedience. We find one such example, not perhaps as explicitly as others, but uh, still evident in our text today. An example which will become crystal clear as we see it within the context of New Testament teaching. So you're there in 1 Samuel 21, and we're going to look at verses just verses 1 through 6 today and seek to apply that to our hearts this morning. I'm going to read all six verses and then we'll walk through them. The Scriptures tell us this, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thy hand? 
Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days, since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. We pick up our account in 1 Samuel 21.1 with David fleeing to a city called Nob. It was apparently a city in Israel. We don't know much about this city. There have been conjectures as to where the city was and, and its position and such. But what we do understand from this context is that this is the place where the tabernacle was residing. Now, this is somewhat unique because throughout all of the period of the judges, as far as we could tell, the tabernacle resided in Shiloh. And yet here we find that it is in this place called Nob, not in the place called Shiloh, which uh, shouldn't necessarily surprise us as it is mobile. Why it ended up in Nob and not, not remaining in Shiloh, we do not know, but it is what it is. And David, the scriptures tell us, come to a, comes to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech is rather afraid. Now, Ahimelech at this time would have been the high priest in Israel. And if you have that outline that I gave you at the beginning of the sermon series, you perhaps remember that on the back of that outline there was a genealogy. And a genealogy was meant to trace the various lines of Aaron through their, their generations. And uh, that's not as readable as I was hoping, but it's, it's up there for you. And so we find that Ahimelech is several generations removed from the man named Eli. At the very top, you have Eli, the high priest, and then his son Phinehas, and then his son Ahitub, and then it continues through to this man named Ahimelech. Now, you recall that Eli and his son Phinehas died on the same day. And on this day... His, Phinehas' eldest son named Ahitub becomes the high priest. Ahitub has a son named Ahiah, and it seems as though there might be perhaps one name missing from the lineage before we come to this man, the man today, Ahimelech. Now recall that Samuel, as a young man, prophesied the word of the Lord to Eli that Eli's family would be removed from the high priesthood and would be entirely destroyed because of Eli's failure to discipline his children into a love for the Lord, and thus his children's failure to properly exercise the high priesthood and the duties and the privileges. Don't forget about this. This promise was made, and we are now several generations removed, and Eli's family is still functioning as the high priestly family in Israel, but that is going to change. If you recall the, um, the sheet I gave you, it actually won't completely, that, that curse will not completely come to pass until Solomon's day. But here we are in Saul's day, just before David's time as king. Eli's family is still on the throne. And we're going to find, particularly as we look next week, how God is going to bring that promise to pass. So David is in Nob and he meets Ahimelech, the high priest. And Ahimelech was very concerned with the manner in which David 
came. And he says here, he asks the question, why art thou alone and no man with thee? See, this is very unique. David is the captain of thousands. David is the king's son-in-law, and yet David arrives alone. David probably never went anywhere alone. Between uh, being a captain of thousands and so maybe having some, some soldiers or some bodyguards with him and then being the king's son-in-law and so maybe having some bodyguards with him, uh, between all of these different positions that he had, a very important man in Israel, he never went anywhere alone. He would at least have had attendance. And yet he arrives alone and this is very suspicious. This is very concerning to Ahimelech. And David responds in verse 2. He says, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. So David blatantly lies here to Ahimelech. And he tells Ahimelech that he's on a secret errand for the king. And it's so secret. So secret is this errand that even that the king doesn't even want David's servants to know about it. So David left all of his attendants and all of his servants in some other place and he came alone to speak to Ahimelech and to um, begin on this journey. Now we're going to consider the nature of this lie next week. I'm going to let the lie lie for a moment, all right? And uh, we'll, we'll really consider that lie as we get into the lesson next week. But we do need to recognize here that David has been uh, he, he's lied. And this is interesting, right? Because last week we spent all of that time talking about how David had done so well in the midst of Saul's wickedness to do right. He had done, and Jonathan as well. They, they didn't care about the physical ramifications of, of doing right. They were going to do right. David was not going to succumb to anger when, when Saul took his rightful wife away from him. David was not going to do wrong. David was not going to lower himself to Saul's, to Saul's attitude and, and Saul's spirit. David was going to still come and play the harp before the king, even though the king hated him. David was not going to overthrow the kingdom, even though it had been promised to him. All of these things were happening because David was going to do what's right. And then he comes to Ahimelech, and the first thing he does is he blatantly lies to Ahimelech. He has been thrown, if I can put it this way, he's been thrown off of his game a little bit here. And for whatever reason, he, he determined, he discerned that he was going to lie in this instance. And it's not going to be the only lie we're going to see come out of David's mouth in the weeks to come. But we're, what we will find is that these lies are going to be very, uh, in this case, devastating. Devastating. So he lies here. And Ahimelech is, is satisfied by this lie. He says, okay, you know, this is the king's errand. It's super secret. Uh, why would David lie to me? He's a great man. He, he, he's a leader of men. He doesn't question David's integrity here. He says, okay, and this is the premise. This is the context within which now Ahimelech is going to deal with David. The, the context of David in great need being sent on a secret errand from the king. And so David then asks another question. He says, what is under thine hand? What do you have here? What do you have power over? I need five loaves of bread. Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or what is there present? I need some food. What do you have for me? And again, this would be kind of interesting. David is on this super secret errand, supposedly from the king, and insinuates that he didn't come prepared. Maybe the idea being that they had to leave quickly and we know he did. 
Um, but they had to leave quickly for this errand and he requests that Ahimelech give him five loaves of bread or he says, whatever you got. Give me five. What I'm asking for is five loaves, but give me whatever you got. And we briefly asked the question, and this was a question that I was tossing back and forth uh, throughout my study. Were there actually any men with David? I mean, we see him flee from talking with Jonathan and he heads out right away. And my initial thought was no. No men, that's another big lie, that there's no men, that he wants the bread just for himself. But we'll find as we enter into the New Testament that Jesus, when Jesus is referencing this passage, seems to indicate that indeed David did have men with him. And since Jesus was there, not physically, but he was quite, I mean, he, he is the ever-existent God, so he was there, he, he saw it, um, he's omniscient, uh, I'll trust him on this one and assume that probably... Um, David did have some men with him, though again, they were not. David left them in some other place. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Back to the text, however, where we find that, that the five loaves of bread would have sustained David, and, and especially if he had other men with him, for just a short time. But they were indeed in great need here. And David is expressing a tremendous need that he has to have some sort of sustenance. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Notice what Ahimelech replies in verse 4. There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. Ahimelech states that within the grounds of the tabernacle, there was no common bread. There was not simply bread, uh, no bread that had not been sanctified for religious purposes. However, there was hallowed bread. Now, as Ahimelech speaks of hallowed bread, what he's specifically referencing here is what is called in the scriptures, the showbread. And the showbread was given to the priests. It was a part of the tabernacle worship services. We find the first institution of this showbread to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. We read in Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, and I'll read through verse 30. God speaking, he says, Thou shalt also make a table of sheet of wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an hand breadth round about. And thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make it uh, excuse me, make for it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. So he's talking about the table of showbread, which would have been made. And it would have been a rectangular table, of course, all covered in gold. And that would have been the table upon which the showbread would rest. And he says, over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold and the table that the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof and the spoons thereof and covers thereof and bowls thereof to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them and thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. So this is the command to make the bread or to make the table and then to place the showbread on this table. In regard to the observance itself or the purpose of the showbread, we actually don't learn about that at all until Leviticus 24. And this is the only time we learn about it in Leviticus 24 verses 1 through 9. And the scriptures tell us this, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, 
Two tenths deal shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial. Even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is most holy unto him of all of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. This is the only true description we see we receive of the showbread. And what we see is this, that there's to be 12 cakes and those cakes are to be put in two rows, six cakes per row upon this table and frankincense which was an incense, was to be put on, on and between them and they were to burn the incense as a perpetual, um, as, as a burnt offering unto the Lord as they consumed the showbread at the end of the week. So at the beginning of every week, they would take the hot showbread and they would put it on the table. They'd put the frankincense on the table. At the end of that week, they would remove the old showbread. They would put new showbread on and then that old showbread was to be eaten within the grounds of the tabernacle. Uh, some say on all on the Sabbath day. Others would, would presume that perhaps it was through the week and they were to do it while burning the frankincense and this was intended to be the priests consuming that which was given to them of the people see it was the offering of the people that brought the the flour with which to make the showbread and so this was taking the the offering of the people the the love of the people to God being shown by giving the offering being made into the cakes and then the priest consuming the cakes while they're doing the frankincense and lighting the incense. And thus it was to be a perpetual covenant. And he says it's to be a most holy covenant unto God. So this was an important thing to God. And it was only the priests of Aaron's line that were allowed to eat the showbread. And it was only as they were burning the incense. And this would have been the showbread from the week prior. And so all of this was set in place here. Now, as we consider this context... We see Ahimelech tell David that the hallowed bread is the only bread, this show bread is the only bread that he has in his possession. And notice he states that if the men were willing or if the men had kept themselves from women, he'd be willing to give this show bread to David. Now, uh, this qualification is ceremonial in nature. The showbread is ceremonially clean and he's asking that the men who eat it be ceremonially clean as well. And one of these ways in which they would be ceremonially clean was if the men had not, for a period of time under the law, had intercourse. And so that's what he was asking here is that the men had been ceremonially clean that they'd kept themselves from women. And under these unique circumstances, Ahimelech says, for the sake of the king's errand and for the need of David, Ahimelech was willing to yield this bread that was hallowed and that was intended to be eaten only by him and only within the grounds of the tabernacle and only while the incense was burning. Ahimelech was willing to yield it in this very unique circumstance in order to give deference to mercy and love and to the need of another above even the ceremonial expectations of the law. Now David answers in verse 5 and he says this, Of a truth women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. 
So he says, yes, the men, uh, we, we presume that he may have actually had men with him. Yes, the men, we've been running for these three days, so the men are, are, have been kept from women, and, and so they're holy, and, and their vessels are holy. Everything that pertains to us is ceremonially clean, so it's going to be fine. And he says, and by the way, uh, the bread is at this point kind of in a manner common, right? Because it's already the bread that's been taken off the table. You've put the new bread on already, and this is the old bread. So, so it's kind of fulfilled its purpose now anyway, right? And you say, Pastor, how do we know that that is the case? Well, look at verse 6. So the priest gave him the hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. So we see here that the hot bread had already been put on, on the new the, the new bread for the week had been put on the table of showbread and the old bread had been taken off and that was the bread that Ahimelech was supposed to eat and he perhaps had eaten some of the loaves, maybe not. Uh, depends on what day of the week we were dealing with and such. But either way, those are things we can't know. But what we do know is Ahimelech had some bread left. It was the bread from the previous week that was supposed to be on the table. And David said, well, so it's already in a manner common anyway and, and, and we are... We are sanctified vessels. Uh, we are men that have kept ourselves ceremonially clean, so we're okay here. And so Ahimelech does it. He gives of the showbread to David. Now, this passage is somewhat difficult to understand, even as I've been explaining it. There are things that we just don't fully know. And I've always really struggled with this passage. You know, David is coming under false pretenses and he's asking for that which is against the law to do. And Ahimelech gives it. And what's going on here? But we, we get some help in this passage and thank the Lord for this. It doesn't always happen this way. But we find from the teaching of Jesus Christ himself some help in regard to how to understand what is going on here in 1 Samuel 21. So I reference you to Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like or not. It'll be on the screen behind me. But I reference you to Matthew chapter 12 where we see an incident. And the, the, Matthew presents actually a couple of incidents here. And they're both having to do with the Sabbath day and controversies surrounding the Sabbath day. And as we look at these incidents of um, kind of the butting of the head between law and faith, we're going to find Jesus clarify for us some of what's going on here between Ahimelech and David. And the scriptures tell us this in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger? And they that were with him, see there, Jesus seems to think that there were people with him. How he entered into the house of God and did eat showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. The account in Matthew 12 surrounds a controversy directly concerning the observance of Sabbath day traditions. The disciples were hungry. They needed food. And in order to satisfy their need, they went into a cornfield and they plucked corn and ate it on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees were very upset by this as 
the law states very clearly that on the Sabbath day, a man is to do no work. Now, in response to their anger and their contention, Jesus uses two contrasting examples. The first example he gives is David, who entered into the tabernacle in his time of need, and he received the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. And not just for him, but Jesus seems to imply for the men that were with him. The second example is the law's testimony of corrupt priests, found specifically uh, oftentimes in the major prophets. I think, I think of Ezekiel when I think of this. And Ezekiel sees these visions of these priests, right? And they have their back turned to the, to the Holy of Holies and they're worshiping the sun. And they've got a little hidden conclave underneath the tabernacle or underneath the temple and there they were worshiping all manner of idols and and of beasts and and so these are priests who presume to do what is right and and look great on the outside but then they're mocking the lord and they're disesteeming him and they're worshiping false gods and they are um, doing what is wrong through self-imposed loopholes through sinful behavior through idolatry They are disregarding God. And the intent of these two examples, this contrast, was to highlight a deep hypocrisy. Namely, they were condemning a man for breaching the letter of the law when that man's heart was not disregarding God or disesteeming God's authority through his actions, but rather he was in a place where unique circumstances dictated an unusual action. Jesus would continue in Matthew 12 and verse 11, giving the example of a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. And he says, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will you not get men together and get that sheep out of there? That even though on the Sabbath day, God says you should not work in a unique circumstance where you are not intending to disesteem the Sabbath day of God, where you are not intending to to disregard God's authority, but rather there's a circumstance where if you don't get this sheep out of the pit, it will die. You do what is necessary on the Sabbath day to spare the life of the sheep, even though you shouldn't do any work. In contrast to this are those who are so careful to keep the letter of God's law that they will actually disregard the spirit of God's law or they will disregard that which God would desire as a, as a outworking of his character in order to keep the law, the letter of the law. Jesus would ask in Mark 3, just as he was about to heal the withered hand of a man. We see it actually in Mark 12 as well. But in, in the Mark 3 account, Jesus looks at the people right before he heals the withered hand of the man and he says this, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? Is it right for me to not do what I can to bless this man on the Sabbath day? Is it better for me to hold to the letter of the law that nothing be done on the Sabbath day and let this man continue in his state of misery? Or would God's character be better reflected in not observing the letter of the law as it, retains, as it pertains to the Sabbath, but in doing so, bless this man for the rest of his life. Which is closer to God's character, Jesus asks. And then, of course, he heals the man's hand. 
To see a man in great need on the Sabbath and to disregard his need in deference to some compulsion to follow the command of God or the tradition built upon the commands of God is to totally miss the point of God's law and thus to disesteem God. God did not give the Sabbath, as we think of the Sabbath, uh, He did not give the Sabbath as a ball and chain to shackle men one day of the week. He gave it to bless men, to exemplify God's character, to serve the best interests of the men for whom it was given. And as one would expect, 99 Sabbaths out of 100, the best thing for people would be to do no work. But on that one Sabbath day where there's need for an act of kindness, an act of charity, an act of mercy, it is far more consistent with the character of God to meet that need than to excuse away the charity in order to rigidly follow the letter of the law. In other words, to God, the heart of love and obedience with which you enter into any observance is just as important as the observance itself. May I say that again? To God, the heart of love and obedience with which you enter into any observance is just as important as the observance itself. Now, we could go on and discuss Jesus' statement, and indeed, um, we did so not long ago in, in Sunday school. In Sunday school, we, we hit that particular passage in Ma- Matthew 12 and its, its various synoptics not too long ago. We'll touch some more on our application today, but we need to get back to the text a little bit, not drift too far. So at the end of Jesus' rebuke here in Matthew chapter 12, he quotes Hosea 6.6, which says this, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And then he tells the Pharisees that if they truly understood what Hosea was saying there, they never would have condemned devout Jews for picking only enough food for them to be sustained on the Sabbath day and particularly as we consider Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, Lord Sabaoth, right? That came up already this morning in our singing. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? And as the Lord of the Sabbath, has all authority to do with the Sabbath what He will, does He not? In the same way, Ahimelech, as the one who was in control of that showbread, it was given to him, had authority to do what he will with that showbread. And what I'd like to do now before we apply is try to take Jesus' insight and connect it more deeply to what's going on here in 1 Samuel 21. Jesus uses David to point to a principle of Scripture. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The principle is that when we are faced with a choice between observing a divine religious expectation or divine moral expectation, if the choice is between a divine religious expectation and a divine moral expectation, the moral expectation should transcend the religious expectation every time. Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. Authority over the Sabbath was His to give and He gave it to His disciples to eat. Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus recognized that the love and the mercy which He supplied His disciples uh, by dis- supplying His disciples with food was more consistent with, a, with the character of God than the strictest interpretation of the law of the Sabbath. And as we apply this to David and to Ahimelech, 
the only conclusion we can come to is that Jesus interpreted David's need here as genuine and Ahimelech's actions as right in the eyes of God in that he gave that which was under his authority to give. The showbread was his because he was the child of Aaron. The showbread was under his authority and he gave of that which was under his authority and in doing so, held to the character of God, giving to a man who was in great need, reflecting love and mercy above the strict letter of the observance of the law. Now, Ahimelech did not give that which he didn't have authority over. He had authority over it. Likewise, Ahimelech did not simply say, well, I don't care about what God thinks, so I'm just going to give you. Right? Because he said, I'll only give this to you if the men have been, ha- if the men have been sanctified, if the men are religious, uh, ritualistically cleansed. So we can see in Ahimelech's thought process that he cared about what God thought, that he wanted what was best for God. And yet in this case, he recognized that the character of God was more reflected if he shows mercy and love to David in giving him his need than simply in observing the hallowedness of the bread and the letter of the law as to how to eat it. Now, Jesus did not in any circumstance here validate David's lie or insinuate that David was right in lying to Ahimelech. Again, we'll talk about that next week. David's lie here is going to have huge negative consequences. But Ahimelech, under the knowledge he had, prioritized mercy above religious observance the spirit of God's law above the letter of God's law. And David received the bread, which was otherwise unlawful for him to eat, because in God's economy, conforming oneself to God's expectations is never about a checklist. It is a spirit of love and obedience that compels us to conform our hearts to God's heart, to conform our minds to God's mind, and thus to exalt God's character above all else. Now, as I say all of this, please know that this is an extremely intimidating message for me to preach. It always is. Because the potential for someone under the sound of my voice to get the wrong idea as to what the Bible is saying, what the Bible is demonstrating, is very high. When we speak of God's law, of course, we no longer, we recognize that Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law, and yet we still have God's expectations upon us as regards to our thoughts and actions. God still expects things of us. When I say that to obey the spirit of God's expectations should be obeyed above the letter of God's expectations, I speak only of those rare times when the two come into conflict. It's not very often that the spirit of God's expectation upon us conflicts with the letter of God's expectation. Normally, they go hand in hand. Normally, what God expects of us physically is little more than an extension of what God expects from us spiritually or our heart. That the external ought to be an extension of our heart. But there are times where the letter of God's expectation to us might conflict with the Spirit. And in those rare times, the Spirit of the law wins out every time. The Spirit of God's expectations Now, if you get the wrong idea about what the Scripture is saying this morning, you'll likely use this principle as a means for you to follow your own lusts, to reject religious principles that are absolutely right and absolutely good, and to to give yourself a pass even on sin in the name of God. 
And to do this, Christian, would be for you to make a tremendous mistake and quite literally to blaspheme the character of God. So please don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to tell you that you don't have any expectations. That's not what I'm trying to say and that's certainly not what the Bible is saying. So I'm going to do my best this morning to explain the importance of this principle in a way that will be clear and accessible and will not lead you to the wrong ideas, but will also not lead you uh, into confusion. Hosea 6.6, we read it already this morning. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. A similar idea is reflected in Micah chapter 6, verses 6-8, through which says this, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. Thy God, excuse me. My God too. The principle behind these two verses is simple but very deep. You can know it in a moment, but spend the rest of your life seeking to understand it completely. Simply put, what makes you right with God is that which is in your heart. What makes your actions right in the eyes of God begins with the heart with which you do them. I believe Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 probably best describes this, and it gives a unique and a helpful perspective here. Isaiah says this, When ye come to appear before me, this is God speaking, of course, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make your prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. The passage in question highlights an important aspect of the sacrifices which God rejects. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your feasts. Everything that God told them to do in the law, God is telling them, I don't want it. Why? He says, because your hands are full of blood. He says, I don't just want the action. It's empty. It's vain if it's just an action. They were doing the right things externally, but their hearts were filled with evil. They made the sacrifices, but they oppressed the fatherless. They burned the incense, but they ignored the widows. The condemnation was not that they were following the religious observances of the law of God, but rather that they did the religious observances of the law of God outside of a true heart of love for God. They didn't care about doing what God truly wanted them to do, which was to express love to Him and to others, mercy and justice. They did the letter of the law and said, okay, that's enough for us, now I can do whatever I want. They followed the letter of the law while opposing the spirit of the law. Jesus would rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, saying this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and of anise and of cumin 
and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Did you catch that? Jesus did not rebuke the Pharisees for tithing of mint and anise and cumin. He didn't rebuke them for keeping the letter of the law. He said these things you ought to have done, but not to have left the others undone. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for thinking that their religious devotion itself was what God wanted, so it was sufficient to please God regardless of their heart for God, their love for God, their obedience to the spiritual principles as a follower of God. Believer, religious devotion and careful observance to some external framework of piety and devotion to God is not wrong. In many ways, it can be commendable and right and good. God wants us to live lives that reflect our devotion to Him and that direct our thoughts toward a consistent abiding in Him. God wants our manner of living to properly reflect the principles of Scripture. And this most effectively happens through a religious framework that we determine to follow. Jesus told the Pharisees it was good that they tithed even of the very smallest parts of their increase. It was good that they cared about the Sabbath day. It was good that they observed the sacrifices and laws of cleanliness and rituals and religion. But religion at the expense of love for God is empty, it's vain, it's worthless. It was not good that they propped up their external observances as the end-all, be-all of their religious devotion and so felt so comfortable living a life of the, the life that they were living that they could be in entirely in internal rebellion but still think that they were okay with God because externally they had conformed themselves to some legalistic expectation. And I have no doubt in my heart that as we approach this in our own lives, that there is some difficulty here for some of us. Perhaps there's someone here under the sound of my voice, maybe listening on the internet. You have everything great on the outside. You look good and you know how to act good, but inside you are a mess. Jesus describes these men in Matthew 23 as those who have clean cups on the outside. They cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside was filthy. Men who were like whited sepulchers, whited tombs. The outside of the tomb is beautiful, but inside are dead men's bones. There are men and women who look great on the outside, but you know your heart is far from God. You think it's enough that you look the part, that people around you think that you're doing fine. You're content as long as you maintain this external reputation of godliness. And this may be particularly notable among second and third generation Christians, among a lot of our children here. You have grown up in this lifestyle of Christianity, and so you know how to play the part. Your parents set standards and lived by them and for all the right reasons. But now you know how to live the standard even though your heart is not with the Lord on it. You know how to act Christian even though you're not truly interested in the heart behind it. But Christian, external observances and actions aren't what God wants. You're not pleasing God simply by looking like a Christian on the outside. Without a heart of love and obedience, all the external actions you could possibly do are nothing but emptiness. 
Believer, it's good that you go to church. But if you sit in this building with unforgiveness in your heart or lust or envy, the time that you're sitting here in that seat, counting the clock, trying to convince others or maybe just yourself that you're doing fine with God and your Christian walk even though you have unconfessed sin or resentment or unforgiveness or lust or envy that's perpetually in your heart, it's wasted. It's good that you have standards for entertainment, music, movies, television, internet, those things. But if you hold those standards with judgmentalism in your heart, thinking that you're better than others because of what you do or don't do, if you hold those standards while simultaneously living a life of dishonor to your parents or gossip among your friends or disrespect to your husband or indifference toward your wife and her needs, then you've missed the way to your matters of God's expectations. It's good that you have standards of what you say and don't say. But if you refuse to swear but will more than gladly dishonor your parents or blaspheme your leaders or take your Lord's name in vain, then you have yielded the divine principle in order to pursue some fake form of obedience likely driven by self-righteousness. That you've set a standard in your life that say, okay, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. That means I'm not going to say these words. But all of these words over here, which are just as corrupt, you just kind of ignore. And you feel like you're doing okay because you're living according to this standard. Your heart's not there. If your heart were there, then you'd see them all the same way. You become a moral cherry picker willing to excuse the secret faults of your heart simply because they won't cause anyone else to think ill of you. All the while forgetting that there's a God in heaven who sees all and knows all and who's not fooled for a moment. This is what God means when He says He desires mercy and not sacrifice. He isn't telling you that He doesn't want you to reflect any sort of external religious devotion to Him. In fact, Matthew 23.23, among many other New Testament scriptures tells us that God is yet pleased and even expects us to do things outwardly. Outward reflection of piety and of devotion to Him. Religion is not intrinsically a bad thing. But religion can never, ever operate at the expense of your heart and its motives. It must be an overflowing of your heart. Doing the externals without a heart of true love and devotion to God is hypocrisy. By that same token, having a heart of devotion to God while ignoring what He has asked us to do is at best immaturity. Allowing your heart of love and devotion to compel you to live that out in your life in a distinct and noticeable way is wisdom. And here's the thing. If your heart is right, if it is pursuing God, and you're under a teacher who isn't trying to keep keep you away from maturing in Christ, the externals will follow naturally. You don't need to worry about your standards. You don't need to worry about the externals of piety. If your heart is right with God and you're seeking Him with all His heart, then you will find some of those. If you aren't naturally resistant to an external framework of piety, one will develop on its own completely separate from your efforts. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean there might come a point in your life where you just love the Lord so much and you want His Word to dwell in you so richly that you start reading your Bible every day. And it's not because you feel like if you don't read your Bible every day then you're not right with God. 
or that if you don't read your Bible every day that, that there's some, some curse that's going to come upon you, but rather you simply say, I love the Lord and I love His Word and I want to read it. And you'll begin reading the Word of God every day and it's for the right reason. It's because you love Him. It's because you want to know Him. And so you have just built an a element of religious framework on top of your life, not compelled by, I must do, but compelled by, I love God. Maybe it'll be the same with prayer every day and Scripture memory and going to church and all of these things which are not, not wrong, but can be done for the wrong reason. That a religious framework builds up in your life as you are compelled by a love and an obedience for God to do things consistently. And then when you look back at what you do, why do you pray before a meal? Why do you read the Bible every day? Why do you come to church on Sunday? It's not, well, because I need to check this off my list to be a good Christian. It's because I love God. And this is what God wants of me. And this is how I can best serve and obey and grow in the Lord. And then it is do compelled by what Christ has done. Compelled by love. It's sacrifice in the context of mercy. And that's not a wrong thing. But religion cannot and indeed must not ever become an end-all of our spiritual lives. Religion finds its proper place as the natural expression of our love for God, not when it becomes the goal of our love to God. Ahimelech and David understood something here. They understood something about the character of God in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. through They understood that God wanted obedience, but that to relinquish the moral expectation that Ahimelech had to love his brother and to provide for the needs of his brother when it was within his power to do it, in deference to a ceremonial expectation of hallowed bread, was to yield the greater necessity to the lesser. For Ahimelech to say, no, I'm sorry, it's hallowed bread and you may not partake of it, go starve would be to yield what God would have wanted at most, which was to bless a fellow man and to meet the needs of a fellow man in deference to some legalistic expectation that he placed upon himself as to God's hallowed bread. Ahimelech chose the better part by yielding the ceremonial observance, the ceremonial expectation to the moral expectation. And every day of our lives, we're presented with the same decisions. Why do we do the things we do? Are my religious actions ends unto themselves or are they the byproduct of my intense desire to reflect and esteem the person and work of God through Jesus Christ? Children, you're growing up surrounded by some measure of standards and of religious activities. I pray that you see these for what they are. They are a means of keeping yourself in the love of God and they are a means of genuinely expressing your determination to obey Him. They are not ends of themselves. Coming to church is not an end in itself. Reading your Bible every day is not an end in itself. Prayer every day is not an end in itself. These are religious expressions to God and they must be from your heart. They must be from your heart. 
I pray that you understand that what your family does and doesn't do as far as standards is not intended to be seen as the only way that God wants it, nor is it what makes you a follower of God, but it is intended by your parents to be an expression of their devotion to God. They won't let you do because they want to honor God. They will let you do in honor to God. That everything that they do let you do and don't let you do is their way of expressing their love for God by protecting you. And of course, your way to express the love for God in that instance is to obey them and to submit yourself for the right reasons. I pray that you understand that what we do as a church, the singing the, the, the meeting together, the, the scripture memory, the reading, these are not things that God intrinsically expects of us in a worship service. I don't have the, the God's manual to worship service that I flick through and say, okay, I need to do this and this and this and this, and we need to have this many songs and we need to stand and sit this many times. Uh, none of that is there. Even our non-age segregated form of worship is not intended by the members of this church to be seen as the only way nor is it what makes us a good follower of God. It is intended to place each of us in the most advantageous position possible to express our love for God and our devotion to God, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, free from the elements of fleshly wisdom and carnality that might otherwise hinder our capacity to grow and to serve Him. And as we understand all of this, when we come to those Ahimelech moments, Moments when what we normally would do and what we believe is normally best before God conflicts with a deeper principle of spiritual necessity or opportunity. Our love for God and our intimate fellowship with Him and our understanding of God's character and, our, and His will will lead us to a choice which, while perhaps different from the choice that we would normally make in any other circumstance, most reflects the character and the will of God. That sometimes we might need to defer the letter of God's expectations for the spirit of God's expectations. We could give examples. Many examples, in fact. And it could take all day, but for, for the sake of time, I'm not going to. I just have so many running through my mind that I want to share. But... Um, I, I think that, that the point has been made fairly clear and I trust the Holy Spirit to be bringing up several examples on your own. Times when, you know what, it might be okay if you missed your Bible reading that morning. Times where, you know, it might be okay if you, if you missed that Sunday. There might have been something more needful according to the Spirit of God's expectations for you that day. That's the kind of examples I'm, that are running through my mind. What God wants God wants sacrifice only within the context of mercy. The letter of God's expectations only within the context of the spirit of God's expectations. And as we close, the question is this. How are you doing today? Have you allowed the letter of standards and rituals and observances to suffice as godliness? It can happen, particularly in conservative circles. While ignoring the more important elements of love and mercy and justice before God. Have you lived hypocritically or maybe just lazily excusing your lack of devotion to God under the guise of doing what you know, Christians do? Ahimelech realized that to give David the former week's hallowed bread, which was under his authority to give, 
though not a normal action in keeping with the letter of God's law, was the best way he had at his disposal to follow the weightier matters of the law to show love and mercy to his neighbor. May God help us to do likewise, to act upon the letter of God's expectations only within the context of the spirit of God's expectations. May God help us not to reject the letter of God's expectations, not to reject religion and piety and observance simply because of some misguided belief that the letter of God's expectations always conflicts with the Spirit because it does not. As we mentioned, typically the letter of God's expectations and the Spirit of God's expectations run hand in hand. May God help us to be balanced believers pursuing what is best in this life in word and in deed but always compelled by a heart that desires mercy, justice, love, the weightier matters of the law, a heart of love and obedience to God. Let's close in prayer.